0: I'm Linda Dittmar, reading an excerpt from my memoir about the Israeli-Palestinian War of 1948, a war of statehood for Israel, but also the Nakba for the Palestinians, the catastrophe. More than 400 Palestinian villages were demolished during that war, sending some 750,000 Palestinians into exile. The chapter is titled, The View from the Minaret. We really should go there, I insisted, seeing Deborah purse her lips, wanting to return to the book open in her lap. It was hot outside, well into Israel's merciless summer. Staying indoors would be much better than trudging through some archeological site in the unnerving heat. And yet that is what I proposed. It's a magnificent site, I read aloud from the government's promotional materials. Wave lashed location, ancient Herodian port city restored to create one of Israel's most attractive and fascinating archaeological sites. Amazing ancient harbor ruins, beautiful beaches. Caesarea is Israel's tourism at its best. As it turned out, cajoling Deborah was not as difficult as I expected. After weeks of searching for the scant remains of demolished Palestinian villages whose traces can barely be found, we were eager for an outing that will not be steeped in dismay. At least it will be easy to find the place, I thought. The Ministry of Tourism made sure that the road to Caesarea would be well marked. Visitors were streaming towards a ticket booth by the time we had parked our car and let ourselves be channeled along a newly paved walkway lined with colorful banners, gift shops, and galleries nestled under vaulted ceilings. Tastefully selected wares beckoned from behind glass. Exotic jewelry, ceramics, imitation antique metal and glassware and textile art for local visitors, menorahs and mezuzahs for American and European Jews. It was hard to resist these shops as I passed by, ever so often slowing down for a better look, not noticing what's ahead. When I finally did look up, I froze. Oh my, I said, clutching Deborah's hand. What, where? Straight ahead, there. So what? Right here in front of us. Yes, I hear you, but so what? Puzzled, she scanned the row of sandstone buildings ahead, where additional gift shops and restaurants could be seen, huddled on the low cliff, rising above the umbrella-studded sandy ribbon that edged the sparkling bay. The air trembled with heat mirages. In the distance, one... Could already hear the voices of children at play. So what? she repeated, disengaging her arm from my insistent grip, puzzled by my urgency. After all, it all looked so ordinary, so predictably amiable. See that minaret? I asked, pointing. Right here in front of us? I was rooted in my place, oblivious of the tourists passing us. Deborah stopped too. The minaret, brightly lit by the morning sun, rose from in front of us, towering above the squat stone buildings clustered below. A certain look came into her gray eyes, intent, a gaze that told me that she was beginning to see the scene differently. For us, stepped in thinking about the Nakba, there was no denying that I the incongruity of the minaret and its adjacent mosque, stripped of their religious meaning and planted amidst the food traffic of tourists, like a piece of public art. In our eyes, the minaret loomed as a spectral witness to the Palestinian village that used to be here before the Nakba. For me, it was also a jolting reminder, quite unexpected, that when I first saw Caesarea at age 11 or 12, shortly after the war of 48, it, I had seen it lying in ruins, its people gone. Perhaps it was a sensation of the humid air depositing a thin film of salt on my arms that brought back a rush of memories. Certainly it was the minaret, the vaulted gift shops I now realized had been a row of derelict village houses when I last saw them back in the early 1950s. The minaret had been the village pumping heart. The tower the muezzin would climb five times a day to call the believers to prayer. Now it stood purposeless, ignored by tourists' intent on getting to the archaeological site. The entry to the minaret, I now noticed, had since been sealed with concrete, as was the doorway that opens into the balcony at the top. Then, I told Deborah shortly after the war, both the entry and the balcony were open. I climbed this minaret more than once, I said, my voice trailing off as bits of memory tugged at me. One memory won't let go a small black and white snapshot, now long gone, taken a year or two after the war. It captures a gangly me in in shorts and a white tank top waving from the balcony up there at the top. It was this photo my father took, I told Deborah. I see him now yet again, missing him achingly beyond words. There he is, his hair ruffled by the breeze, standing in his dark bathing trunks way below me, near the mosque, still young. My sister, looking spindly, is standing nearby as he aims the camera up towards me yet again. It was an ordinary beach day, and a father amused by the feat his daughter had just accomplished. Look at me, Dad, I may have called out, waving. Though none of us made much of it at the time, it was unsafe to climb the minaret back then, when my parents took us to that beach where the abandoned village houses still gaped, empty and forbidding. Like many Ottoman village minarets in Palestine, This one was chunky as it rose above the mosque. An interior spiral staircase, windowless and narrow, opened under a small cupola into the narrow balcony that encircled the tower. That's where the muezzin would have climbed to, to chant his call to prayer, reminding the believers of Allah's greatness and merciful presence. The spiral staircase was already crumbling when I ventured in shortly after the war, and the opening into the muezzin's balcony was so low that even as a child I still had to duck as I stepped over the threshold. I groped my way up the stone shaft in total darkness, each foot searching for the wider part of the next triangular step that clung to the central core, my palm tracing the dark inner curve of the encircling wall, seeking reassurance while fragments of stone crumbled underfoot. Still, while this climb was creepy, stepping out into the narrow muezzin's balcony that had no guardrails took even more courage. I braved those steps more than once, and it was scary every time, though emerging into the balcony never failed to exhilarate me. With the sea glistening behind and the salty breezes beguiling the scorching sun rays, I was enthralled by the vistas spreading far below. Clustered nearby was the abandoned village, looking so peaceful as it lay empty of people at the rim of the bay, where the sandy dunes edged the sea to the north and south as far as I could see. Further inland was a wide ribbon of green farmland sliced by another ribbon of coastal road that shimmered in the bright sunlight. And finally rising at the eastern horizon were the dun, carob and oak dotted Carmel mountains vaguely chunky against a hazy summer sky. When I look back at that young me, feeling triumphant as she steps into the muse- museum's balcony, I wonder about her elation. Yes, I loved measuring my young body to the task of, and the burst of sunlight that dispelled the darkness. But now that I have paused many times since, To gaze at panoramas, I wonder whether this sweep of a bird's-eye view might not also include, hidden in its fold, a sense of dominion, the raw power bestowed by heights, practiced in a child's game of the king of the mountain. What is there in those vistas that spread below us beyond beauty, awe, and geographic knowledge? Doesn't their allure lie at least in part in a sense of possession? Similar to the way some Ishar Israeli soldiers survey the Arab village they are about to capture in his extraordinary novella Hilbert? Is ishar's village seen by three young men, but these young men from above, seems minuscule, its people doll like its fields a distant patchwork carpet. There is in their gaze, as it rests on the still populated village of 1948, admiration for the cultivated valley and its fertile availability. But there is also, in this gaze from above, a coveting, a drive to possess, and already an inkling of incipient ownership the land that stretches before us is available to be known, husbanded, and mastered. I can't imagine any of this was on my mind as I felt my way up the steps of that derelict minaret, certainly not at the cusp of adolescence. In the 1950s, people didn't comment on the abandoned villages and still rarely do. Many years still had had prickled by before I'd clutched Deborah's elbow when faced with this phantom mask from my own distant past, still standing irrevocably present. Looking at that minaret, I could once again see my parents and sister settling into a day at the beach, a ground cloth spread out, a picnic hamper at hand, a tub of sunscreen lotion opened, a beach ball already tossed. Now, welcoming Deborah and me, the same lazy waves were still lapping at the sand, the same salt-laden humidity frizzing my hair, and the same harsh sun still burning its way into my skin. All of it the same, and yet so different as the churning tourists around us reminded me. I wondered what became of that photo my dad took, but what could that old snapshot have accomplished? Would it be anything more than just a shadowy effigy of an elusive truth? Isn't the minaret proof enough, finally, visible as it is to anyone who cares to notice it? so incongruous among the hubbub of tourism? As for me, I need no proof. I remember vividly in my body climbing that minaret. What I'm less sure about and urgently want to recall is what that half inch of a child seen at such a distance might have understood of those outings to a fishing village so recently vacated by its people. I invoke her image so that I might scrutinize the child who was and still is me, snapped by her father in an ordinary moment of parental bemusement. Scrutinize her? Yes, but also accept her into my being, as even at 11 and 12, she already knew, at least sensed, something of the place she was standing. None of us knew at the time that the people expelled from Arab Caesarea were actually Bosnians who had settled in Palestine in 1884 in one of the Ottomans' many transfers of population. For us, they were just generic Arabs, see-through transparencies whose contours vanish when a new image gets imposed on the old, print, on the old, printed, I imagine these images already faded, already archival, a thing of the past. It was not proof of the Nakba that rattled me as Deborah and I stood staring at the minaret. We already seen much worse. What struck me most that summer morning was the indifference of passers-by to this relic of a disastrous past, a past that is unseen even when it is in full view. Shouldn't at least some of them pause to wonder what the mosque is doing there on the way to Herod's summer palace? Neither my father taking the photograph, nor the girl that was me waving towards him from above can claim that we never noticed the minaret or the derelict buildings nearby. But what did such noticing mean? For us, like many other Israeli Jews, it was a willed blindness, a blurry image faintly outlined at the, at the edge of our retina. The word Nakba has come into Hebrew only, only recently, and still barely. Passers-by hardly register the minaret that still stands in Israel in full view, in the park near Jaffa's old port, for example, at the center of a busy roundabout in Safed, or at the waterfront promenade of Tiberius by the Sea of Galilee. Mosques are easily disguised as a restaurant in the artist village of Ein for example, or as an art gallery in Safed. Minarets are harder to assimilate. The challenge for passers-by is whether to see them for what they are, or for that matter, whether to notice them at all. A minaret? I remember my friend Carol saying back in Boston. Was there a minaret? No, I didn't see any. And Naomi, years later, over the phone, no, I don't remember our guide saying anything about it. Was there a minaret?